You are about to listen to one of the five sample lessons for the Arizona Real Estate Salesperson Exam Prep audio lessons. The full length of this series of audio lessons is 8 hours and 42 minutes and consists of 20 individual lessons to help you prepare for the Arizona Real Estate Salesperson Exam. If you like these lessons, you might consider going and buying the full bundle of audio lessons at the website reexampodcast.com. Thank you. Welcome to this lesson entitled Methods of Legal Description. In this lesson, we will be talking about different ways to legally describe land. It's not just enough to give your address. We'll talk a little bit about why that is. And these methods of legal description are needed for all sorts of things when we're talking about real estate. So it's an extremely important. Anytime, basically, there's an official contract, you have to be able to legally describe where the property is in one of these ways. We're going to be talking about common ways to describe property, reasons for legal description, methods of description. We'll talk about the rectangular survey system, the meets and bounds method, the lot and block method, and also a little bit about what datums are. So let's go ahead and get started. So there are common ways of describing property, and then there are these legal ways of officially describing property. Most of the time, these common ways are just fine. That, that, that's all we need. When we're not doing some sort of official real estate business, then it's quite all right just to give an address that li he lives on 52 South Main Street. Or you just give the name of a place. Oh, that's Grand Central Station. But unfortunately, these common ways of describing things are not good enough for legal documents. That's just not enough. The An address can be inexact, can be subject to change. You can say, well, it's this is the address. Sometimes addresses change. Street names change. Uh, the names of different businesses change. If you're talking about a, a station, so for public transportation, those routes change. So it's not exact enough just to give the address or the name of a particular place. You have to accurately identify and locate a parcel of land within the boundaries of a particular state. So within Arizona, and then you go ahead and narrow it down, say it's in this county, in this city, and then you use one of these methods to show exactly where in the city the property lies. It's really important to make sure you have one of these legal methods in every contract, or else it can be thrown out as an invalid contract. You definitely don't want that. So there's different reasons why we do this. The first is just as a matter of public records. Public records that are kept at the, the county level, often the state level, We'll need to have these proper legal descriptions when property is changing hands. It has to, you have to be able to look it up in the official records and talk about it that way. For creating a deed for conveyance or lease. So if you have a deed and you're conveying that deed from one person to another, you have to legally be able to describe the property so that that can be a valid deed. Otherwise, it's not a valid deed. It's not accurately describing what it's supposed to convey. When you're completing mortgage documents and when you're trying to take out a mortgage to be able to describe the property that you're getting the mortgage on, the legal way, of course, and then executing and recording various other legal documents. 
record exactly where the property is. So there's a lot of reasons. Basically, anytime there is an official legal contract, you got to have one. So let's talk about a few of these methods of description. So any of these methods of description can be used to form a legal description of a piece of property. To talk about a few different methods, the meets and bounds method, the rectangular survey system, and the lot and block method, also sometimes known as recorded plat method. So let's dig into each one of these a little deeper, how they describe properties, because they each take a different approach to it. Some are better in kinds of property than others. So we have first the meets and bounds method. It meets and bounds just uses a series of landmarks, directions, and angles in order to define the boundaries of an area. So think about if it's like you spread out a map on a table and you're making a bunch of little dots and those are your little points of interests and you're at the end you you make a you connect the dots where you draw lines between the dots and when you're done you've got this boundary you've created a shape on the map and everything within that is what you're trying to describe so it starts with what we call the point of beginning the pob sometimes so you start at the point of the beginning and you say i'm going to go for this far until i reach the next dot at this angle this direction for this far and then stop at the next landmark and then I change direction and I go at this angle for a certain length and then I stop so on and so forth. What's really important is that you have to get back to the point of beginning for in order for this method of description to be valid. It's got to start there you go ahead, you go ahead and trace all around the property and you end up back where you started. So it's a closed figure there's been about it. Once you've done that, then you're good. So in this method, we call it the meets and bounds method. The meets refer to distances and directions, and the bounds refer to fixed reference points. So if you think about it, meets and bounds, distance, directions, and fixed points. These different fixed reference points can be all sorts of things. They can be natural things like rocks, plants, rivers, lakes, or they can be artificial things such as survey stakes. A surveyor can put a something man-made in the ground and say we're referring to it from this point. Or it can be other man-made monuments. There's a big statue in the middle. And so you, that is one. It be, so when you're, when you're doing this, you begin with identifying the city, country, and state, and then you give the point of beginning, and then you describe the dish's distance and direction to the first monument, and then to the next, and to the next, until you return to the point of beginning. So that is a great way to describe large areas, small areas, areas that are irregular in size, areas that are nice and regular in size. It's really quite a versatile method. So it, it is pretty complicated. You do have to have a lot of different descriptions that go into it if it's not like a basic square lot or something like that. But then again, it can handle things that are not in a nice shape, in a funny shape and still be just fine as long as you've got enough monuments in order to describe it. It's just going to be a little bit more of a complex description and simple. All right, so that is the meets and bounds. Next we have what's called the rectangular survey system. And this is a very traditional method, one that goes back quite a while. It's been being used in the United States for a very long time. And it uses a grid system. So you think about like a piece of graph paper that forms grids. They've got these perpendicular lines where a series of vertical lines 
and a series of horizontal lines, and they're all equidistant, equal distance from each other to create little squares. So this, of course, works best when you actually have square or rectangular parcels of land. This one has... This one struggles a bit if you are trying to describe a plot of land a strange shape. But uh, often there are a lot of plots of land that do take this square or rectangular shape. And so this works quite well for that. That's really not a problem. So sometimes if you do have something that is a funny shape, you have to combine this one with another method of description. So you use this one, but then, then you say, oh, I can also use that as accurately as possible, and then use the meets and bounds within that particular quadrant. So the north and south lines, the, the lines that run from north to south, are known as meridians. Uh, and the principal meridian is the starting point. You start from the principal meridian, take all of your measurements, talking about how far away you are from that principal meridian. So you say that's the starting point, and everything else in this area is based on that. And then the north-south area between the meridians is called a range. And the range between the two meridians is always six miles. So it's, it's really important that it's consistent, so it's nice and you predict and be able to see how far away things are. Then the east-west lines are known as parallels. So we have parallels and meridians. And the base parallel is the starting point for the parallels. So we're talking about east-west direction. And the area between the two parallels is known as a tier or a township strip. And these are also six miles wide. So if you can imagine if you're doing the, this grid, they're all going to be these boxes of six square miles a piece is what you're... And each one of these boxes is known as a township. A township is then six miles long by six miles wide. So six square miles total. And then you can break down these townships even further, smaller squares that are just one square mile a piece. So you make six of these little smaller squares known as sections. And so each section is one square mile. Of course, you can break each uh, township up into six sections. So that's one square mile or equal to 640 acres. And then you can break those 640 acres down into smaller plots, and that's often done so plots of one acre or two acres, half an acre, quarter acre, so you, then you can then break it down smaller and smaller and smaller to describe. So it really is some versatility with this. You start large, say what township it's in, what section, and plot within the section. So it really does have some versatility to it after all. Okay, so that is known as the rectangular survey system. Then finally, we have what's called the lot and block system. So the lot and block system takes yet another approach where a surveyor draws up a map of a particular subdivision. And then once you've done that, you they draw a representation of all of the things in the subdivision, all the different lots, and they give each lot a number. So let's say there's 27 lots, they number them 1 to 27. And at the top, they write, okay, this is the name of the subdivision it's in this city, in this county. And then you can refer to each one of the lots. So I'm the person in this contract is buying lot number 25 in this particular subdivision. So this is all done by a surveyor to make sure it's accurate. So they're accurately representing the size and shape position of each lot and block. So after that they've done this, the surveyor then has to present it to local authorities who can then approve or reject it. So there is some 
oversight so that they can make sure everything is good. They give it to the county recorder. And so anytime that it has to be referenced, it, the, the county recorder can give it to you and you can reference it. So this is not just another way. It's pretty convenient. It's a good visual representation of where something is in relation to others that are around it. So that's a good way to legally describe property. So those are the, the three main methods that are legally used to describe property. One other thing that we should talk about are called a datum. And if you think about property, most of the time we're talking about sort of X and Y coordinates. It's latitude and longitude, where it is in a two-dimensional space. But if you think about it, some properties, you need to include that third dimension. Let's say you are talking about a high-rise apartment building, where it's got apartments stacked upon apartments all the way up for 20 floors. You can't just say, well, it's that apartment building. You have to be able then to say, well, where in that apartment building? Third coordinate saying how high or how low is it? Is it the first story, the second story, the 15th story, whatever? So a datum is then used to describe that. They are needed when you're talking about air and subsurface rights too, or property that has multiple floors. Typically in the United States, the starting point that is sort of the reference point for datums is sea level at New York Harbor. So sea level is considered like the starting point zero. And then you say how high above sea level it is. So to make some things, to make things easier, especially if you're really far away from New York City, that some surveyors use local benchmarks instead to start their datums. Let's say you live somewhere really high in elevation and you say, well, I'm just going to pick this thing and go off of that. So that is what we wanted to cover today. So let's go ahead and go back and test yourself to see how well you understood the content for today. If you feel like you did great and you're understanding everything, you can go on to the next lesson. If not, you might need to review what we've been talking about and test yourself again before you move on. So I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna ask you a few different questions. See if you can answer them. My first question is, what is one reason that just giving an address on a legal contract is not enough. So it's not considered enough because addresses are subject to change. They are, and they can be inexact. Those are both good reasons why you need to have something more specific when we're talking about legal descriptions. My next question is, what are some reasons you would need a legal description? What are some so events or actions that you're taking that would require a legal description? See if you could name a few of those. So when you are publicly recording the property, so like in your county register, when you are creating a deed, or conveying the property or leasing the property, you need to have the description. Completing mortgage documents, that has to be in place, or executing and recording any other legal document that has to do with the property. Basically, there's all sorts of reasons you would need this, so it's good to have it on hand when you need it. My next question is, what is the meets and bounds method? Describe that as well as you can. So the meets and bounds method basically takes all sorts of landmarks and draws 
lines between the landmarks to create a bounded area. It's sort of a big game of connect the dots around the property. My next question is, what are meets and what are bounds? What are those two elements that make up this? So meets are distance and direction. So you need to say how far you're going and in which direction. And then the bounds are the fixed reference points. They could be natural or artificial landmarks. So my next question then is, what are some examples of things that can be bounds, these artificial or natural landmarks? So you have all sorts of things. The natural ones can be things like large rocks, plants, rivers, lakes, and uh, artificial things can be things like buildings and statues or survey stakes that the surveyor just puts in the ground. My next question is, what is the point of beginning and why is it important? So the point of beginning, as the name would suggest, is where you begin, but it's also where you end. You have to trace the shape around the property and get back to the point of beginning. It's not a valid description unless you actually get back to the beginning and sort of close the shape. It can't be left open. So that's what that is, and that's why that's important. My next question is about the rectangular survey system. What is the rectangular survey system? How would you describe it? So the rectangular survey system is a method of description that works on a grid. You've got different lines going vertically and horizontally, creating this grid and allowing you to describe things within the grid. So my first question is, what do you call the north-south lines? And also specifically the north-south line where you begin, what is that known as? So in this case, the meridians are the north-south lines, and the principal meridian is the starting point for those north-south lines. My next question is, what are the east-west lines called, and what is the starting point for the east-west lines? See if you can remember that. So in this case, the parallels are the east-west lines, and the base parallel is the starting point for your east and west lines. So my next question is, how much space is between the east-west lines and the north-south lines? How much space are we talking about? So in both cases, it's the same answer. It's always six miles between lines. So you're creating these boxes that are six miles by six miles, six square miles. 
So what then do you call each one of these boxes? And if you break it down into one quarter mile squares, so six of these, what are each one of those smaller squares known as? So in this case, the large box that is six square miles a piece, those are known as townships. And then if you break it down into the one square mile boxes, those are known as sections. So townships and sections. And then the sections, you can break it down even further into smaller increments of acres. So each section has got 640 acres. You could break them down into one acre lots, two acre lots, half an acre, quarter acre, whatever you need. My next question is, what is the lot and block method? How does that work? So the lot and block method is having a surveyor creating a map that shows a subdivision that numbers each one of the plots on the subdivision. And then you can just refer to first the subdivision map and then the plot within the map. And that allows you to refer to specific lots. And of course this has to be approved by authorities in advance. Once it is approved, it can just be used anytime anything is anything needs to be referenced within that particular subdivision. My next question is, what are datums and when do we need to use datums? So datums describe elevation. They describe how high or low a property is. And we need to use them sometimes for talking about air rights and subsurface rights, but also sometimes with buildings with multiple floors, you need to reference how high or low the particular property is. Then what is then used as the reference point for these datums? So the default reference point is just the sea level at New York Harbor, though local surveyors can use different reference points depending on where they are and what's most convenient for them. So they don't always just default to New York if that's too far away and that's too difficult to make work. All right, for these next few questions, I'm going to give you a description of a kind of property. So I'm just going to describe what kind of property it is, where it is, what it looks like, that sort of thing. And then you need to go ahead and tell me what kind of method of legal description would you be able to use? There might be more than one, but see if you can name as many as you can and give your rationale as to why you think that particular kind of legal description is going to be preferred. So first, Let's say you have a high-rise condo. It's in a very large, tall building. And so you've got all sorts of other condos beneath and below it. What kind of description would you need in order to describe this particular kind of property? So in this case, you really could use uh, different kinds. Meets and bounds might not be the best just because it's uh, not really an irregular size. Uh, rectangular survey might work. 
or Latin block, but in, in conjunction with that, you would have to use a datum. That's an important thing to remember because you need to talk about how high it is. Which one of the properties is it in this really tall building? So be sure to include that in your answer, that you need to have a datum with it. Let's say you bought a large parcel of pasture land. There are big acres of pasture land in a rectangular shape. What kind of method would be best to use for that kind of land? So in this case, I'd either go with the meets and bounds, where you could just draw a large rectangle using meets and bounds around your property, or just go for the rectangular survey system. If it's already in a rectangle, it'd be pretty easy to talk about as it being a number of acres is part of a, a different township and section. Lot and block wouldn't work in this case because you're not in a subdivision. You've just got big swaths of land. They're always going to make a big map of just a big bunch of empty fields. So lot and block in this case would not be appropriate. And finally, what if it is a single family dwelling that is in the middle of a large subdivision? What would you think you could use to identify that? Single family dwelling in a large subdivision. So in this case, you really could use quite a few. The lot and block would be a really easy one. If that subdivision has been mapped out, it'd be really easy just to say, well, it's lot number 52 or whatever it is. And you could use the other ones. But really, the best win in this case would probably be the lot and block system. And that is all for our lesson for today. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you learned from this last audio lesson. And if you did, you might consider buying the full bundle of audio lessons at reexampodcast.com. Best of luck in your studies.